All right, welcome. Those of you who don't have little kids for daylight saving time, good to see you. I'm going to go ahead and open us in a word of prayer, and uh, it'll be a little more intimate today. It always is. The, uh, the fall, uh, when daylight saving time ends in the fall, it's always better because you get that extra hour, but everybody suffers today. So let me pray for us, and then we will get into our topic. Let's pray. Almighty God, we thank you for today and just ask that you would bless this time, that you would uh, guide and uh, protect us, that you would uh, help us in our thinking on this issue. We confess that this is a difficult issue. We also confess that this is a common uh, objection to, uh, to the truth of Christianity. So would you uh, give us wisdom as we seek out this topic? It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. All right. Well, today we're going to be talking about evolution and the origin of humanity. Uh, obviously an important topic as we continue our series on defending the faith and and uh, doing what's called apologetics, which is not saying we're sorry for Christianity. We are not. Rather, we are giving a defense, an apologia for what we believe. Now, let me mention what we're going to be going over in this, uh, this lecture specifically, okay? We're going to be going over human evolution, specifically in this lecture, which is, and what, what we as Christians should think about it. If your concern or your interest is more on creation or how old the earth is or the days in Genesis, are they literal or whatever, please check out our previous lesson on creation that's available uh, on the website. But this is specifically going to be over human evolution. Let me give you two good resources if you want uh, to study this topic more. One is called Darwin on Trial. The other is called Darwin's Black Box. Okay? Darwin on Trial and Darwin's Black Box are some standard works if you want to read more about some of the problems when it comes to the idea of human evolution. Uh, but this, uh, this lecture today will specifically be on that. Okay? Now, here's what you need to understand before we get into this lesson. Within the scientific community, within those who are not Christians and their thinking, within the secular world, this is accepted as if it is fact, period. I know if you're a Christian, you're saying, this is just a theory. This is not a fact. Your opponents don't care about that. When you tell somebody that you don't believe in evolution, it's like you're telling them that you believe the world is flat, okay? That's how people see you. I'm not saying that evolution's true. We're going to say, obviously, as a Christian, that you can't hold to certain forms of macroevolutionary theory, but you need to have some self-awareness. You need to know how people are going to perceive you, that if you say you don't believe in evolution, people are going to look at you like you believe in aliens, or like you think the world is flat, or like you don't believe germs exist, or something like that. That's how they're going to see you. So this is not always the best place to start when it comes to your apologetics. It takes a lot of time to undo people's thinking on this area, and creation science sometimes really hurts us in this. So well-meaning Christians who start theme parks where they have pictures of dinosaurs and say they're 3,000 years old, that really hurts Christianity. Don't take strong stands where the Bible doesn't take strong stands. The Bible does not tell us how old the earth is. <gasps> it doesn't. It doesn't care about that. The purpose of Genesis 1 and 2 is to show you who created everything and what everything's purpose is and how mankind messed it all up and how a savior is provided. That's the purpose of Genesis 1, 2, and 3. It's not to answer all of our scientific questions that we want to know. In fact, had the Bible taken time to scientifically explain how everything was created, at some point in world history, that theory would have been shown to be false or not believed, okay? You have to realize science changes all the time. So if the Bible were to just pick one scientific theory, at any other point in world history, people would read that and either think it's crazy or a new scientific theory would come and disprove it. 
So God's too smart for that, so he doesn't try to give us all those scientific details because that's not the purpose of Genesis 1 and 2. Rather, it's to tell us what is called functional ontology, what everything is there for. Mankind's job is to worship God by subduing creation, and the sun's job is to rule the day, and the moon's job is to rule the night, and the seed-bearing plants is to have more seed-bearing plants. It gives us things purpose. It doesn't give us all the details we want when it comes to science. Now, you need to keep in mind that you will be seen as crazy by not holding to human evolution. You just need to know that so that when you're engaging with people who are not Christians, you are aware of how they view you. Let me give you some quotes here. This comes from James Watson. Who's James Watson? Anybody know? You ever heard of Watson and Crick? James Watson and Francis Crick were the guys that discovered the double uh, helix structure of DNA. Okay, they're very famous scientists because of that. And here's what James Watson says. Today, the theory of evolution is an accepted fact for everyone but a fundamentalist minority whose objections are based not on reasoning but on doctrinaire adherence to religious principles. Or Richard Dawkins. Who's Richard Dawkins? Anybody know who he is? Yeah, that's what I heard. Was he in Family Feud? That's good, yeah. Uh, Richard Dawkins is uh, probably the most famous scientist alive right now. He's a uh, 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 an evolutionary biologist at Oxford. He wrote, uh, he's written several books against Christianity and against theism generally. His biggest selling one was The God Delusion. And here's what he says. It is absolutely safe to say that if you meet somebody who claims not to believe in evolution, that person is ignorant, stupid, or insane. Or wicked, but I'd rather not consider that. Okay? So you just need to know how people are going to see you. You just need to know that being a Christian sometimes means you take reproach, you take shame. That includes intellectual shame or intellectual reproach. But let's talk about what is evolution, what we should think about it as Christians. Let me give you a definition. The process by which different kinds of living organisms are thought to have developed and diversified from earlier forms during the history of the earth. Okay, that's a short definition. Let me give you a longer definition of evolution. This is Grudem's definition. I think it's actually pretty good. So we're going to read it. It's long, but it's on your notes, so you can read along with me. The history of the development of life began when a mix of chemicals present on the earth spontaneously produced a very simple, probably one-celled life form. This living cell reproduced itself, and eventually there were some mutations or differences in the new cells produced. These mutations led to the development of more complex life forms. A hostile environment meant that many of them would perish, but those that were better suited to their natural environment would survive and multiply. Thus, nature exercised a process of, quote, natural selection in which the differing organisms most fitted to the environment survived. More and more mutations eventually developed into more and more varieties of living things so that from the very simplest organism, all the complex life forms on earth eventually developed through this process of mutation and natural selection. The idea is, is that originally you don't have life. After the Big Bang, everything goes out everywhere and there is some type of mix of chemicals or some sort of science juice. I'm not a scientist, so I'm going to use a lot of terms that aren't correct. Some sort of science juice gets together and creates a one-celled organism. And then that replicates itself, and that creates more uh, complex-celled organisms. And the ones that aren't adapted to survival, they die off or get eaten. The ones that are better genetically end up surviving, and you get the survival of the fittest, which is that uh, the idea that whatever is best adapted to its environment is what's going to pass on its genes to stay alive. That is the definition. That is what we're dealing with when it comes to uh, evolution. Now, let's talk about the difference, and this is important for you as a Christian to understand, the difference between what is called microevolution and macroevolution, okay? Microevolution and macroevolution. 
Microevolution is a change within a species, okay? It is not one species going to another species. It is merely a change within a species. So, for example, moths will change their color based on their environment. There was actually a very famous study that came out of England where they compared moths that were typically white with moths that lived in this city where there was a bunch of soot from the different uh, fireplaces, you know, the old chimney sweep, Mary Poppins kind of thing. And so those moths, over time, the ones that were white would get eaten and the ones that were passing on a darker color would end up surviving. So those moths were darker over time, whereas other moths, whereas they traditionally uh, were, were white, they're now darker because of that change, okay? That is what is called microevolution. We see this even within humanity, right? So uh, why are, do some people have darker skin color? Why do some people have different color eyes? Well, typically, if you're from an environment where it is hotter, you're not going to have as much body hair. You're going to have more melanin in your skin so that you're not getting burned, etc. Whereas if you're from a climate that is cooler, you're going to have pastier skin because you're trying to absorb all the sunlight you can. You're going to have lighter color eyes so that you can better perceive the little light that you have. You're going to have more body hair because you're trying to stay warm. So we see this across the spectrum. These are little changes within a species. You see this when you work out. You put a bunch of stress on that muscle and make a bunch of tears and it comes back as bigger muscle, right? Uh, Humans are different sizes. So uh, one of the things that's interesting is the Roman legionnaires were a lot shorter than the uh, barbarians that they were trying to conquer. Those that were German, those uh, kind of Gothic Germanic tribes had a tendency to be much taller. And part of that is genetics, part of that's their diet. The Romans mainly ate grain, the soldiers that were out on the move. And so the average uh, height, I think, of a Roman soldier was something like 5'6", which that's the average. That means there's a bunch of guys shorter than that, whereas the Germanic tribes were much taller. They ate meat, had different genetics, etc., But you need to see this. All of this is really just adaptation. This doesn't disprove God or anything like that. It actually shows how brilliant God is that he's designed the human body to adapt based upon certain environments, right? If you go to Mexico, which I don't recommend that you go right now, if you go to Mexico, do you drink the water there? You do not, okay? You do not. Your body is not adapted for that, and it will be bad. I just say that. Just as a euphemism. It'll be bad, Okay? But if you grew up in Mexico drinking that water your whole life, your body has adapted to that. All these are, this is all microevolution, okay? It's change within a species, okay? That is something that you can and should hold as a Christian, that God has designed humanity, that we can adapt for survival because God is a good creator. Now, here's what you need to understand, though. That is not one species changing into another species. Here, we're talking about humans with different color skin or different heights or different diets or different size or whatever, but they're all still humans. They all still bear the image of God. They also have this value that God has just given to humanity. Now, that is different than what is called macroevolution. Macroevolution is a change from one species to another. It's a change from one species to another. That's the idea of humans being descended from apes, That's the idea of lizards, for example, possibly turning into birds. That's one theory of what happened to the dinosaurs. What is the best dinosaur? I heard it. Somebody said it. Velociraptor. Thank you. That's correct. That's the the objective. That's the scientific answer. The scientists get together and they all say, what is the best dinosaur? They're like, what do you mean by best? They're like, just raise your hand. Velociraptor. Okay. That's my favorite one. If you've ever seen Jurassic Park, those are the ones that are scary. T-Rex is awesome, yes, tyrant, lizard, king, whatever, but you see him coming. You just like hide in a car and he can't find you. Whereas the velociraptors, there's like three of them in the car with you. That's what they do. 
Well, scientists now think that the velociraptors don't look anything like they do in Jurassic Park. They actually think they now look much more like a very large bird, including feathers, which is no fun, okay? Lizards are more terrifying than birds, and Jeff Ashley said amen. And so, uh, and so that's what they think happened to uh, velociraptors. But notice that that's a change from one species to another species, okay? There's very difference between having a black horse and a white horse and an Arabian stallion and whatever. They're still all horses. That's very different from humans being descended from apes or from, you know, uh, lizards being descended from fish or whatever it might be. And so macroevolution is change within a species, whereas microevolution, I'm sorry, macroevolution is change from one species to another, whereas microevolution is just changes and adaptations within one particular species, okay? Wayne Fair, who's a professor of biology, says this that non-living substance gave rise to the first living material, which subsequently reproduced and diversified to produce all extinct and extant organisms, okay? All extinct and extant, all the ones that have died and the ones that are currently existing, okay? Now, here's what you need to understand. You as a Christian are free to believe in microevolution. There are changes within a species because of God's good design. However, if you hold to macroevolutionary theory, that species change into completely other species, that is not a historic or consistently biblical Christian worldview. The Bible's very clear that God makes certain things to reproduce after their own kinds. God makes mankind not from apes, but out of the dirt and breathes life into Adam. And then he makes Eve out of her rib, or his rib. Sorry, I, uh, I'm trying to wean myself off of Red Bull and you see what happens. It's better just to have all the energy instead instead of not enough energy. And so biblically speaking, you have to have this idea of God's direct creation. Evolution, macroevolution, implies randomness. It implies that after 9,758,482,000 mice, God finally made a mouse that worked. Okay, that's what it implies. It implies randomness. There's no randomness with God. He controls everything. It implies that you have to completely upend the Genesis, uh, you know, account, Genesis 1, 2, and 3 of mankind and our development and our fall. And so macroevolution is not a consistently Christian position, but you can hold to change within a species what is called microevolution. Let's talk about Charles Darwin, okay? 1809 through 1882. Who is this guy? He is an English biologist who is credited with popularizing the idea of human evolution. He's an English biologist who is credited with popularizing the idea of human evolution. Everybody that talks about evolution will obviously mention the name of Darwin. He's kind of the grandfather of this theory, okay? He's written several books. Let me give you the two most famous. The first one is called On the Origin of Species. That's the correct title, by the way. Every time people say this, they say it incorrectly. They'll say Origin of the Species or something like this. The title is On the Origin of Species. It was published in 1859. And it's the book that actually promoted the theory of natural selection, Okay, so his first work here is not actually about humanity yet. He's just talking about natural selection and evolutionary theory generally. And then it was his book in 1871, The Descent of Man, which applied the theory of evolution specifically to humanity. Okay, specifically to humanity. You ready for some fun facts about Darwin? Let me give you some Darwin fun facts. First of all, though Darwin somehow got credit for this view, Other thinkers, both modern, such as Jean-Baptiste Lamarck, 1744 through 1829, and ancient, okay, Anaximander, 500 BC, 
Lucretius, 99 BC, already had fully formed views of natural processes, including evolution. So here's what's crazy to me. Darwin is not a great thinker. His, his uh, model is very influential, but he himself is not a great thinker. He is only saying things that multiple people said before him. Before Darwin, you have guys modern with a fully formed view of evolution, and you have ancient thinkers with a fully formed view of evolution. Why Darwin gets any credit at all blows my mind, okay? It's kind of like if you're the first guy to walk on the moon. Who's that, Neil Armstrong? Lance Armstrong's the cheater in the bicycle thing. Neil Armstrong, you're the first guy to walk on the moon, okay? And you're like, I did it. One giant leap for mankind. You're hitting the golf balls on the moon or whatever. And then you get back and they're like, hey man, a guy 2,000 years ago already landed on the moon ahead of you. You'd be like, oh gosh, that's gonna kill my Twitter account, right? Well, that's the thing that's going on with Darwin. There are thinkers before Darwin in the modern era And there are thinkers in the ancient era that already have this idea of processes, of animals turning into other animals. They already have it before Darwin, and yet for some reason he gets the credit because he's the one that made it popular. When he writes about it, it's at a time where people want to accept it. He adds a uniquely scientific spin to it, whereas guys like, you know, Lucretius are doing it mainly from philosophy, okay? Charles Darwin used to be on the 10-pound note. So we use dollars over in uh, England. They use what are called pounds. And he used to be on the 10-pound note. I remember I got a chance to uh, go study over in, uh, in England and uh, using their money, which I always thought was like not real money because it came before 1776. And uh, so I, uh, I was there, by the way, during the 4th of July in England. And for some reason, it's just not as big of a deal there as it is here. And uh, so I remember having this money and I was looking through the currency and I was like, here's a, the 10-pound note. It has Charles Darwin on it, which I thought was fascinating. And so my hope was that I would just keep that and I'd come back a few years later and it'd be a 20-pound note. That was my idea, that hopefully it would change over time and be worth more money, but that's interesting. He once ate an owl. The end. He married his first cousin, which is ironic considering his views about survival of the fittest. Okay, this is one of the great ironies of history, that this guy who will support human evolution and survival of the fittest will marry his cousin, which is not the best for the gene pool, okay? Which is not the best for the gene pool. He had one degree, so this is not a really learned scientist. He had one degree, and what do you think it was in? It wasn't in biology, it wasn't in chemistry, it was in theology, okay? Darwin's degree was in theology, And here's what's so interesting to me. What eventually made him downplay his Christian upbringing, which he had, what originally made him downplay his Christian upbringing was the death of a loved one. You will find with those that are not Christian, with those that are specifically atheistic, a lot of times what happened was not that they just woke up one day and was like, I think I'm gonna be an atheist. Rather, something happened. They lost a child, a spouse left them, they got really sick, something happened, and they said, I hate God, therefore my worldview will now shift to there is no God. You'll find this constantly, that when you meet an atheist, typically the question is not why, it's what happened? What happened? What we want to do, according to Romans 1, is it's not that we don't know the truth, it's that we suppress the truth in righteousness. There's no such thing, according to the Bible, as a real atheist, Okay? What we do is we suppress the truth. We don't like certain things. We don't want to be accountable to God. We want to live the way that we want to live. And so then atheism is used as kind of a crutch so that we don't feel bad for our actions and we can do what we want. 
I found this interesting. There was uh, several different social media accounts that I was looking at from a lot of people that are really big in the LGBTQ community. And many of them mention that they are, you know, gay or transgender or whatever it is. And then right after that in their, their Twitter profile, it says that they're atheists. And I think what happened is it happened in that order. It wasn't that they were an atheist and so therefore they pursued homosexuality. They were pursuing homosexuality, knows that the Bible says that that's sinful. And so to get the, their conscience off their back, they then become atheistic. That's typically the way that this happens. I don't like God's rules or I don't like God or I don't like what God decided to do. And so it's easier just to be atheistic than it is to deal with those things, okay? Next, listen to this one. This is fascinating. And you should use this. As a Christian, if you're debating somebody, you should use this next point. It's very important. <clears throat> Darwin believed that the theory of evolution should lead us to conclude that some races are better than others. Actual racism. Okay? Not what our society says is racism, which is just anything, but actually believing that one race is better, one ethnicity, one, uh, you know, is better than another inherently. Darwin believed you should hold that. Okay? You should hold that. The full title of his original book, On the Origin of Species, is this. On the Origin of Species by Means of Natural Selection or the Preservation of Favored Races in the Struggle for Life. That's the full title. You see, Barnes & Noble doesn't have that full title on it when you buy it. It wouldn't quite sell as well. But if you hold that we're a bunch of monkeys that are just changing into humans, then you could easily hold that some types of humans are more evolved, they're further down the line, than other types of humans. Here's another quote from Darwin from The Descent of Man. Listen to this. The Western nations of Europe now so immeasurably surpass their former savage progenitors that they stand at the summit of civilization. The civilized races of man will almost certainly exterminate and replace the savage races through the world. Okay? So when you meet somebody that believes in evolutionary theory, you need to say to them, oh, you must logically then be a racist. And they'll say, no, I'm not a racist. And you say, no, 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 I'm not saying that you're, I know you're saying you're not a racist because it's not cool to be a racist. I'm saying your theory naturally leads to this, okay? If we're just changing from apes, then it's reasonable to believe that some people are further down the spectrum, have reproduced better, have better genes than others. That's your view. That's not my view. Well, no, I, I'm, not a, you, I'm not saying you're gonna say you're a racist. Of course, you're not gonna admit your faults. You're too proud for that. What I'm saying is your theory leads to racism. If you hold this theory, you're a racist, whether you want to believe that or not. The two inherently go together. Feel free to keep that sharpened sword in your sheath, and then when you need to use it, pull it out and chop your opponents to pieces. Okay. Three important evolutionary theories to know, okay? The first is Darwinian. With Darwin's theory, you need to know that the idea is that evolution is slow and progressive, after millions and millions and millions of years, things slowly change. After thousands and thousands and millions of years, things slowly change. So you don't instantly go from one animal to another animal. You have all these in-between animals uh, that have died off, okay, that were not uh, fit for survival. You've all seen the image from The Descent of Man of the, like, chimpanzee that ends up turning into the human who's walking, and then a lot of people have made funny memes where that person then evolves into like a robot or something else and it just keeps going. I was gonna have one of the guys draw that picture up on the board behind me, but I figured it would probably be more distracting than it was helpful. But that's the idea with Darwinian evolution. Now here's the problem with that, okay? We don't have all those intermediate forms. If it's the case that, that you know, you had this monkey that slowly turned into a human, we should be finding all these different hybrids 
Not just of a different type of monkey, but of, and there should be millions of them. For every animal that's evolved, we should be finding all these intermediate species. We should have this huge fossil record, and they don't have that. Every now and again, they'll dig up some old bird, and they're like, well, this bird kind of looks like this. And you're like, no, 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 you don't understand. We should have millions of these, and we should have them for every animal, and there should be a clear progression from one to the other. Darwin knew about the gaps in the fossil record. He just thought that one day we would discover them. He just thought that archaeology hadn't caught up to science yet, okay? So there's a newer theory of evolution, okay? Darwin's theory has had had to be critiqued over time, and it is called punctuated equilibrium. What is a punctuated equilibrium? It's the idea that evolution is not slow and progressive, but that it jumps quickly. So you have one species, and then there's such a change in the environment that to, to survive, that species has to adapt really quickly and turn into and, and mutate and take on these different genetic advantages and biological advantages and these kind of things. Okay, that's the second one is punctuated equilibrium. Evolution happens in spurts is a good way to think of it. Whereas Darwin's view is very linear, it's very progressive, and a punctuated equilibrium view, evolution happens in spurts. And then the third view here is what is called theistic evolution. Theistic evolution. This is the idea that some Christians hold, which is that God exists and everything in Christianity is true, but the way that God made humanity is through using the evolutionary process. That yes, humans did evolve from apes, but at some point in the process, God granted the Imago Dei, God granted what's special about humanity to a particular thing within that line, and that's where humanity began, okay? So let me ask this question. Is that a Christian position? And before you answer yes or no, I'm going to ask you, what do you mean by that? So somebody, give me your thoughts. Is theistic evolution a Christian position? And yes, that question is, gener- is generic intentionally. No. So, okay, are you saying that if somebody holds that position, that they cannot be saved? So then it is a Christian position. Okay. So, <clears throat> do what? Yes, yes, yes. Here's the, here's the thing. I don't believe that you can be consistent with what the Bible teaches and hold to theistic evolution, okay? So I don't think it is a biblical view. I think it is a wrong and sinful view. Are there Christians who really do love Jesus and they're orthodox and everything else, but they hold this weird view about how mankind came about? Yes, okay? So yes, you can still be saved and hold this weird view, but it's not the correct view. So in that sense, it's not a Christian position. Can you be a Christian who holds that position? Yes, but I would not recommend it. When you start messing with the story of Genesis 1 and 2, you start playing into other things that the Bible's gonna call back to later. When it talks about us all being in Adam and now through faith being in Christ, it's really important that Adam was a historical person. When you see Adam failing in the garden and not trusting God, and you contrast that with Jesus succeeding in the garden of Gethsemane, and you take away the historical Adam, you lose a lot of the story, okay? So it's not just what does Genesis 1 and 2 think about Genesis 1 and 2. It's what does the rest of the Bible think about Genesis 1 and 2. And it takes Adam and Eve as historical, literal people. One of the reasons that Paul says, and it's very unpopular, but one of the reasons he says that women are not to teach or exercise authority over men in the church is because of the creation order and the fall order. He bases it off of creation. And then he bases it off the order of the fall, Eve eating before Adam. And he uses that for a theological purpose, okay? So no, so I think you're in sin if you hold to theistic evolution. But you could still be a Christian and hold that position. One of my all-time theological heroes holds that. He's great on everything except this issue, okay? Now, let's talk about some logical 
and scientific problems with evolution. So we've talked about what it is. We, we talked about how Darwin ate an owl, which is weird. We talked about all these other things. Let's talk about some logical and scientific problems with evolution. First of all, after 100 years of experimental breeding by scientists, they have been unable to make macroevolution happen. The tendency is that a species tries to retain its original species. It actually resists evolutionary change. Dogs remain dogs and fruit flies remain flute, flute, fruit flies, flute flies, etc. Okay? Here's the idea. Because this is such an accepted fact in the scientific world, there have been scientists for over 100 years now trying to make evolution happen. They do experimental breeding. They do these kind of things to try to get these animals to turn into completely different animals. And what they found is that things actually resist changing. They actually don't want to transform. They especially don't want to transform into some completely other species. Even if they did, by the way, somehow actually get one species to transform into a completely different animal, that wouldn't show that that happened by random process. It would show that the most intelligent scientist in the world, through 100 years of research, had to make it happen. It would actually be, in some, some, some senses, a defense of theism, not a refutation of it. Number two, the argument of evolution is a tautology. What is a tautology? It's where you reason in a circle, that your conclusion is already included in your premise. The claim is that a creature that develops an advantage to survive will survive. But how do we know what really is an advantage? We simply see what has survived. This is a circular argument. It states that if something survived, it must have had a competitive advantage, quote unquote. And if we ask what that advantage is, we just select some feature that modern organisms have and say that must have been the advantage. Do you see how that's arguing in a circle? So if you say, Zach, why did that particular bat uh, survive? And I say, well, look at the cool little cuts on its wings. That must have helped it survive. And you say, how? And I'm like, well, it's alive, so obviously it worked. It obviously survived. You see that you're reasoning in a circle. What you take as an advantage is really just whatever an organism already has because it's already alive. What you would have to do is you would have to, before the species evolved, you would have to say, this is what it needs to turn into and this is when it will happen. You can't look at it after it's already quote-unquote evolved and then say, oh, well, this must have been an advantage, despite the fact that sometimes we don't even know what the advantage is. Number three, complex organisms that require multiple parts could not have evolved independently, okay? Complex organisms that have to have these individual parts that work together wouldn't have evolved independently. Let me give you an example. Let's say millions of years ago, there's this creature that has no eyes, this slimy creature thing, okay? And it needs to develop an eye. Seeing is an advantage. Everyone agree? Okay, seeing is an advantage. But how would it ever develop the eye? Because for the eye to work, there's like a hundred different things in the eye that have to evolve. And none of those individual things would start evolving because it provides no benefit. It only is a benefit if the whole eye is there. It's not a benefit if just one part of the eye is there because you can't see, or another part of the eye is there because you can't see, or another part of the eye is there you can't see. Again, this is random process, right? So it doesn't know what it's turning into. So how would you get all those different parts of the eye that have to work together to see when you couldn't develop any individual one? Any individual part of that eye provides no benefit. How would evolution know? How would that slimy creature thing know that it's trying to develop an eye. Let me give you a better example. Does anyone know what a bombardier beetle is? It is a beetle, and in its thorax, its back part of the beetle, it has these two compartments, okay? 
In one compartment, it has one chemical. Let's call that chemical A. In the other compartment, it has chemical B. And in between those two, it has a wall, okay? Now, to so if it's being attacked as a defense mechanism, it turns and it squirts out both of those chemicals together. And when they hit, it heats up to something like over 200 degrees, okay? So those two chemicals become this like acid fire that it can shoot at other animals. Pretty awesome, okay? Pretty awesome. How do each of those evolve without the benefit of the other? Why would you just develop chemical A? That wouldn't provide any defense. Why would you just develop chemical B? That doesn't provide any defense in and of itself. Why would you divide a barrier wall between them before you have developed either chemicals? Are you saying all of these evolve together at the same time? Well, why they're growing, why they're evolving and changing, they provide no benefit. What happens, and this is my favorite thought experiment on this, is that if the animal evolved, the chemical A and chemical B with no dividing wall, as soon as these little beetles are born, they just explode, okay? Right? The point is, for it to be an advantage, all the things have to develop at the same time. There's no way that it's an advantage for them just to develop individual parts because it doesn't provide whatever it's trying to do, whether it's seeing or spraying people with acid or whatever it might be, okay? Number four, <clears throat> we do not have fossil records with the intermediate organisms. Darwin knew this and just thought that we would find them later. We have never found them. Michael Denton, who's a biologist, says this. Neither of the two fundamental axioms of Darwin's macroevolutionary theory, the concept of the continuity of nature, that is the idea of a functional continuum of all life forms linking all species together and ultimately, ultimately leading back to a primeval cell, and the belief that all adaptive design of life has resulted from blind random process have been validated by one single empirical discovery or scientific advance since 1859, okay? Number five, evolution explains why certain creatures are similar, but not why certain creatures develop differences that seem to provide no benefit. So if you hold that something evolves and turns into another species because of some type of benefit, some type of adaptation because of its environment, what about all the things that creatures have that seem to provide no benefit? Like your appendix, right? Or whatever it is. There are a lot of things within a species. So take horses, for example. There are different part types of horses. Some are bigger than others. They have different kind of hooves. They have different kind of manes. They have different kind of noses, whatever it might be. Some of those provide no benefit. They're just different. Why would those change? Why would those change if it doesn't provide an actual benefit? Number six, the chance of life evolving randomly is ridiculously high. The chance of life evolving randomly is ridiculously high. Now, let me give you this quote. This comes from a guy named Robert Kofel. He's a PhD from Caltech, a biologist guy, and he says this, okay? He's assuming, here's what he's assuming. He's assuming that you cover the entire earth in tons of protein. So he's already starting out helping out the atheistic side. Assuming that, what would be the chances of life evolving if you already had protein and amino acids and all that kind of stuff all over the earth? Here's what he says. The probability of finding two of the active molecules to produce one enzyme molecule on an earth covered with 95 pounds of protein molecules would be 10 to the 22nd power, and the probability that they would be identical would be 10 to the 70th power. And could life start with just a single enzyme molecule? Furthermore, what is 
what is the possibility that an active enzyme molecule once formed could find its way through thousands of miles and millions of years to that randomly formed NRA or DNA molecule which contains the code for that particular enzyme molecule's amino acid sequence so that the new copies of itself could be produced? Zero for all practical purposes. He's saying if you covered the world in 95 pounds of protein over the entire world, what are the chances of it producing one enzyme molecule and then it finding the correct thing to evolve and stay alive and all these kind of things. Here's what it comes down to. He goes on to say that the chance of a living organism developing statistically is 10 to the 340 millionth power. That is one chance in 10 with 340 million zeros after it. Okay? So even from a scientific perspective, if you're like, Zach, I did not understand that last quote. Me neither. But I know numbers. And if somebody says... Let's play a game. In this, uh, in this barrel, I have a bunch of beans that are black, okay? And there are 10 to the 340 millionth power of beans. So this is like an enormous bat of beans, but there's one white one, okay? Reach in there. Do you think you're going to grab it? I don't think so. I don't think I'll be able even to get close to that one. I'll be miles away from it because there are so many beans. That's the idea of what he's saying. Number seven. The evolutionary hypothesis still doesn't describe where the universe came from or how everything got started. This is an Achilles heel for this worldview for me, okay? This whole system assumes that all that exists is material, all that exists is matter, and that what happens is you have this big bang, and then everything goes out, and things just eventually transform and and turn into everything that there is, okay? The problem is, and we talked about this when we talked about the cosmological argument, you cannot have an eternal universe, or you would have never gotten to today. If the universe goes backwards infinity, guess how many days you would have to traverse to get to today, Sunday? An infinite number of days. You cannot have an infinite universe. What you have to have is a being who is outside space and time, who is not material, who creates things. There has to be a starting point. There has to be something that those chemicals floating around before you get the Big Bang, those chemicals can't have existed forever, or you'd have never gotten to the time of the Big Bang. And so you have to understand that the fact that we still don't know then how everything started is a strong argument against this evolutionary worldview. Number eight, the evolutionary theory doesn't tell us the end goal, what's called teleology. Yes, it's to survive and pass on your genes, but for what purpose? Why is life trying to stay alive if there's no reason why it tries to stay alive? To quote Leibniz, why is there something rather than nothing? So if the goal in evolution is to survive. Pass on the good genes, get rid of the bad genes. Why? So that thing can pass on the good genes. Why? So that thing can pass. Why are things trying to stay alive? What are we trying to turn into? What is the purpose? Wouldn't it be easier just for things not to stay alive and just die? Why are we progressing towards something if everything is blind, random process? When you're progressing towards an end goal, that assumes intelligence. That assumes mind, divine mind, whatever it is. Number nine, evolution is not strictly provable because it is not strictly testable, okay? Evolution is not strictly provable because it is not strictly testable, okay? You can't really test it. It's something that you have to hypothesize and then see if the evidence today fits. It's not something that you can test. How are you gonna test what happened millions of years ago? You have to rely on some fossils and some geometric dating and these kind of things, but you can't test it today Jeff talked about this in a sermon a few weeks ago. It's very hard to prove things from history because they're not, you can't reproduce them. You have to just look back to what most likely happened with written accounts or whatever it is that we have in that particular history. Let me say it this way. There is a philosopher, his name is Karl Popper, 
okay? And he created what is called the falsification theory. Now, let me tell you why this is important. What he said is for any scientific hypothesis, for it to really be science, there has to be a way to disprove it. Even if you can't disprove it, at least you should know what criterion would disprove it to do science, okay? You have to understand you don't have that within an evolutionary worldview. Do you know why people that are scientists that are not Christians hold this view? Because they start with their conclusion. If I assume that science excludes miracles, if I assume that God doesn't exist, then I do science. I'm not actually looking for truth. I've already narrowed the bounds of what I'm willing to say happened, and I've excluded everything else. That's not really looking for truth. That's not doing real science. Real science should lead you wherever the evidence leads you. And if that leads you to belief in God, great. But from the outset, if you say miracles don't happen, God doesn't exist, now let's just look at the world, you're not doing objective science. You're just, it's kind of like if, I, if, uh, if a dog could talk and it was colorblind, and he's like, everything I look at is black and white or gray. Those are the only options. You would say, maybe there's some evidence that you're not taking into account. Maybe your worldview of just being able to see black and white is only this. By the way, I don't know if dogs just see black and white, but go with me. We've all seen Shrek where donkey's looking for that flower and he can't see it because he's colorblind or whatever it is. So this is important, Karl Popper's idea that for any hypothesis, there has to be a clear way to disprove it or it's not doing real science. By the way, this is true with the transgenderism argument. If somebody goes into a doctor's office and says, I know I look like a man on the outside, but I feel like I'm a woman on the inside, there has to be a way of disproving his view of him being transgender. If not, you're not doing real science. There always have to, if transgenderism was true, there would be one person who came to the doctor's office that was actually transgender and another person who just thought they were. And the doctor would have to have an objective standard of saying, you actually are and you actually are not. But there is no objective standard. There is no way to falsify it. There's no way to say that it's wrong. If somebody just identifies that uh, as that way, that's just what they are. That's not doing science. Science, you have to have the falsification principle. You have to have a way of disproving something or you're not doing science, okay? Or you're not doing science. Some problems with an evolutionary worldview. So not only are there problems within the idea of macroevolutionary theory itself, but let me give you some problems within an evolutionary worldview overall. If evolution is true, then humans do not have more value than any other thing. Plants, bugs, rats, etc. Okay? If it's true that humans are just evolved goo, we do not have more value than any other creature, period. We do not have value. We're just evolved goo. That's a huge problem, okay? When you step on a bug and when you kill somebody, you should feel differently. Within an evolutionary theory, you, there, there's no objective reason why you should feel differently. I'll give you a, a stronger example. There's a very famous philosopher at uh, Princeton, his name is Peter Singer. He's one of the most famous ethicists and philosophers in the world right now. And he believes that if your house caught on fire and you had a mentally handicapped kid that was severely handicapped and you had a very intelligent ape as a pet and you could only save one, you save the ape. You save the ape because if we're just evolved goo, then the thing that's more intelligent, that more can experience pain would be the more valuable thing. We as Christians are not sexist. We as Christians are not racist. We are, however, speciesist. The Bible's very clear on this, that humans have way more value than other animals. I don't care if you kill a thousand harambes to save one image of God bearer. You do that, okay? Because humans are way more valuable than any other creature. And so this evolutionary worldview, though, would not say that. 
It, it, some of them will say that humans are more valuable because we experience pain or we have higher intelligence, but that's just arbitrary. They're just picking something. Evolutionarily speaking, you don't have a greater value. Number two, some races would be further along and evolving than others, and this would lead to actual racism. You have to understand what the Nazis are doing with eugenics is right if evolutionary theory is right, okay? In other animals, we can breed them to get out the bad genes and to keep up the good genes. That's what we do with racehorses. You take the fast horse, and then it has fast horse babies, right? The same thing is true with humanity. And so eugenics, where the, the Nazis are trying to get rid of those who are deformed or those who are uh, you know, Jewish, obviously, what they're doing, whatever it is, they're trying to get certain genes out of the gene pool to produce this ultimate race. That's, they're just being consistent with Darwin. They're just being consistent with their worldview. It's evil and they're wrong and therefore their worldview is wrong and everything they're doing is wrong. We know that as Christians, but from their worldview, they're just being entirely consistent. <laughs> Number three, if survival of the fittest is true, then you should seek to harm others if it provides an advantage for your offspring over theirs, okay? Offspring over theirs, okay? So imagine what happens in nature. I don't know if you know how this works, but in nature, animals fight each other to reproduce. They, two males will fight each other over who gets to have the female or whatever it is. It's a very violent, it's not Lady and the Tramp. There's no lions like rolling the little, uh, you know, the little uh, meatball over or something like that. There's no romance. It is a lion fighting another lion, sometimes killing him so that he can have this female lion, whatever it might be. Those things would be right for humans to do if evolutionary theory is true. Number four. Rape, adultery, and sexual assault might actually be good if they allow you to produce more offspring. That's certainly the case in nature where animals are trying to reproduce as much as possible, get their genes out there and not the genes of others. That's why one ape will come and kill uh, the other baby apes of another male or whatever it might be. We should be doing the same thing if evolution is true. Number five, this one's fascinating. This is where, I don't know if you know this, but a lot of times in the social and the political left, there's a lot of ideologies that conflict with one another, but they don't really realize it because they're just united against whatever the, sta the, the, the standard is. They're just united against the status quo. That's what brings them together. The enemy of my enemy is my friend. Though some of their views clash with each other, let me give you one. The first evolutionary theorist thought that homosexuality was a mental illness because it did not accord with reproducing with the opposite sex, Okay with the opposite sex. In Christianity, we can explain homosexuality and same-sex attraction and these kind of things. We say that we are born broken and sinful, so we desire things we shouldn't desire, and Christ has come because he is better than your desires. That's what we can say as a Christian. If you hold to evolutionary theory, though, it's always blown my mind when somebody who holds to evolutionary theory supports homosexuality or supports being single or supports transgenderism or supports anything that doesn't reproduce. I wouldn't understand if I held that worldview why I would support those things. I would have to say that that's a defect. If it's the case that you inherited, why would you inherit genes that would make you attracted to the same sex, evolutionarily speaking? That's something that would have died off back then, if this is true. So how the, uh, the gay lobby and the uh, atheistic lobby work together on this, I have no idea. Number six. I like this one a lot. This one was pointed out by a professor at Notre Dame. I got to hear speak one time, and uh, he, his name's Alvin Plantinga. He gave a great lecture, and here was the point that he made. If your mind evolved to stay alive and not to find truth, how could you possibly think that you were right if you were an atheist? So here's what he'd say. The Christian has a reason to trust our mind because God made it, and God made everything good. 
God's intelligent and he made humanity. We're just these little creatures, these little dirt people, but for whatever reason, he gave us a very high intelligence, okay? I can trust my mind within my worldview. If I'm an atheist, though, my mind did not evolve to find truth. My mind only evolved to stay alive. Whatever is helpful to believe to stay alive and pass on my genes is why my mind evolved, not to find truth. So how could the atheist possibly trust their mind when they're arguing about truth? This doesn't disprove or prove atheism. His point, though, is that the Christian is more consistent in our thinking than is the atheist. Because we start with a mind we can trust, they start with a mind that they cannot trust. If your mind just evolved to stay alive, how you could ever do abstract reasoning about whether there's a creator or life after death or any of this, you couldn't do that. You couldn't trust it because it's just evolved goo that helps you stay alive. As long as it works, it's good, not as long as it's true. Number seven, within an evolutionary worldview, you would not have an objective standard of morality. You would not have an objective standard of morality. Those who uh, hold to this type of worldview create ethical systems. They say our society says this is good. Well, there's a problem with that. Some societies think some things are good, like gassing the Jews, that other societies don't think are good, okay? Or they have to say, well, this is my individual opinion of what's good. When you're doing that, you're not doing ethics. You're just doing social opinion or individual opinion. There is no universal morality if this is the case. But I don't wanna steal my thunder. I'll be talking more about God and evil at a later uh, lecture this semester. Lastly, what if evolution were true? So let's say everything that I just said is incorrect, all the reasoning is incorrect, and actually evolution is true. Does that provide a defeater for Christianity? It does not. It would mean that we would have to reinterpret how we understand Genesis, but it would not defeat Christianity. So I guess what I'm saying is, it's not true, but even if it were, it wouldn't affect us to the extent where we would need to forsake our faith. It would affect us in the same way that when we realized that the world was round, we had to go back and look at certain texts that talk about the sun rising and realize they're just speaking from the viewpoint of the, the, the viewer. They're just speaking from our human viewpoint. It's not saying that objectively that the sun rises. It's just using common parlance. It's just using normal colloquialisms in speech. So I'm saying, I don't think, as a Christian, you should believe in macroevolution. I don't think that it's true. But if it turned out that it was true, it wouldn't provide a defeater for Christianity. It would mean we would just need to reinterpret how we understand Genesis. By the way, the first part of Genesis is extremely poetic. There are many theologians that will say what Genesis is doing is giving us these bigger principles. It's not trying to do all the science that we're trying to do. And so you have freedom in interpreting Genesis, especially one and two. Genesis one and two is not the same type of narrative as is the gospel of Matthew, okay? There are poetic elements. There are referring to the sun, not as the sun, but the greater and lesser lights so that you're not playing off of uh, Egyptian mythology and these kind of things. So I say all that to say, if I talk to someone who's an atheist and I say I'm a Christian, they say they're an atheist and I say why? And they say, well, because I believe in evolution. I just say, okay, let's pretend that evolution is true. I grant you that. Now, how come you don't believe God exists? It just helps me get to the point. I'm not saying I actually agree with them. I'm just playing devil's advocate for that purpose of Uh, confronting them with their disbelief. Okay, Jared, come on up here. We're gonna do a little Q&A. While you're walking up here, I'm gonna pray for us and then we will uh, will get started. Almighty God, we confess that you are great and your ways are beyond our understanding. I pray for those in here who uh, have never thought about this. I pray that this would encourage their faith, that your word is true, that you made one man from the dirt. That's why we go back into the dirt. That's why we are buried when we die. And that from that man, you made Eve. 
And through Adam and Eve, you've made all humanity. That we, there's only, in a sense, one race, the human race, and that we are all related back to Adam and Eve. And so I pray that you would help us believe this more. I, hope you would see, uh, I pray that uh, you would help us see the radical difference between us and other animals. That we gather and we create iPhones and we go to the moon and we worship you and we have complex emotions and we have, uh, we're wearing clothes and gathering together in a worship. There's, there's just these vast differences between some wolf in a cave right now somewhere. Would you help us see our value? Would you help us lift that high? It's in Christ's name we pray, amen.